Sijun prides itself on supporting journalists throughout their working day. They have a handy and free media request service, which helps you get the info you need for your stories. You can also set up a free professional profile on Cision and connect directly with PRs. Meanwhile, cisionjobs.co.uk is the perfect job site to find your next great role. Finally, the Media Moves newsletter is a fantastic place for freelancers and staffers to shout about their new jobs, new beats or availability for commissions. Come and join the Cision family. Find out more by visiting cision.co.uk forward slash journalists dash services. and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Emma Wilkinson. And I'm Lily Cantor. We're both experienced freelance journalists and in each episode, with the help of two great guests, we give practical tips about working for yourself. So this week, we're going to be talking about moral choices. But we, before we get on to that, we've uh, both been navigating Twitter's rather baffling decision around blue ticks and uh, verification. So I had a second attempt um, at getting one uh, before be, uh, I was rejected the first time round um, and reapplied. Yes, and da, 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 they gave you one, Lily. That's fantastic. They did. They it's did. really good news because it shows that it does work for freelancers because one of the things that we've been really frustrated about is that as a freelancer, you don't necessarily fit quite into the criteria that they're asking for. Um, so when you mentioned this, we had thought we'd cracked it because one of the things that they ask for is that your Twitter handle is linked on a site you've worked for. And as we all know, when you're freelance, that's not a thing. So we we thought we'd cracked it and you thought you'd found a way around this, Lily. I did. And I got all excited and told Emma how I did it. <clears throat> and you went off and, and had a go, didn't you? And followed I a did. similar similar sort of thing to what I did. And no, rejected again, but for a different time this reason. Apparently, I'm not notable enough. So that's encouraging. And it was really, <laughs> really quick, wasn't it? Like within a few really hours. Quick, within, yeah, like three hours or something. So apparently, the 200 articles I've written this year already for blue tick verified publications is not enough. So back to the drawing board for me. Um, and when I actually tweeted about this, I did have a lot of freelancers get in touch. I think it is a general source of frustration among the uh, freelance journalism community. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And uh, I think there are a lot of frustrated freelancers out there. So, yes, we, we feel your pain. We'll plow on. It's fine. Doesn't really affect the day to day, does it? But yeah, yeah. But let's move on to something more positive. We're going to talk about our highlight of the week. Um, I, I well, I was going to say my blue tick actually. So I think it I'll can stick, still be your highlight. Yeah, I think yeah. I'll stick with that. So what's yours, Emma? Um, yeah. So I'd had a very very busy September and October, and so I'd not sent out any pictures, even though I had lots of ideas because of lack of time. So last week I did jump back on that pitching train and send a couple out and one of them I'm in discussions about they were interested but with a slightly different angle so that's positive and it's kind of nice to get back into that uh sort of zone again yeah that's really great when you you you've got those ideas and you can actually get 
get them out there into the world rather than sitting on them and waiting for like when you've got time to do them yeah brilliant let's move on to our topic this week we're going to be talking about moral choices that might be something that well it can be a variety of things that you might have to make as a freelancer it could be anything from who you write for what you write about or the responsibilities you have towards your interviewees and sources so our first guest to help us unpick this is Alice Alice Draper a freelance journalist writing about social justice and she's based in South Africa She's written for Vice, Hello Giggles, New Frame and Refinery29 and she has written a chapter in the book Living While Feminist. And we also have uh, Miranda Levy, uh, journalist, author, columnist and speaker whose work has been published in several women's magazines as well as Mirror, Guardian, Telegraph, Daily Mail, Sun as well as The Spectator, Jewish Chronicle and New New York Post. So we've got a really nice long list there. Yeah, so thank you both for coming on today to talk about moral choices. I think this is a a really good topic that we're looking forward to digging into. Um, We wanted to make a start by asking you for an example of when you faced a moral dilemma as a freelancer. Um, Maybe it was a publication or a topic you felt uncomfortable with or something in particular you were asked to do for a piece. So Alice, can we come to you first? Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I think what when I think of moral choices, I um, just for context, outside of my journalism, I also do some publicity work for clients. And my first kind of moral dilemma is I was doing um, PR pitches for an NGO here in South Africa. And they asked me to use my journalism contacts to get them publicity. (laughs) And obviously that poses a huge moral dilemma for journalists because we're not using our journalism to do PR. Um, And so I had to, I actually, because I was so green, I um, didn't really know what the best approach was like, because I was really I thought that the work that they were doing as an NGO was really important and it deserved it deserved PR. Um, but I also didn't know what my ethical line was that I should should or shouldn't cross as a journalist. And I reached out to a kind of more experienced journalist. I'd done a mental call with her and she sort of told me like, well, you have to be transparent. And also it may, if you're reaching out to journalism contacts, it may kind of blur sort of affect your credibility as a journalist if you're asking for PR um so I ended up deciding not to use my own name and just sending them giving them press releases and giving them contacts um and it worked out fine they got some publicity out of it um yeah but that's definitely was my first kind of big moral dilemma that I faced as a journalist as well as someone helping out of PR yeah that's really interesting wasn't it I know that Lily you've had kind of uh, questions queries thinking about how to juggle along those lines because if you you know as a freelancer you're likely to have lots of different types of work that you do so kind of keeping the boundaries between those can be um a bit of a tricky thing to to navigate uh Miranda can you think of a time when you had a a moral choice to make with regard to your your freelance writing well the first thing I want to say is I'm not sure that morality is the right term 
um, just throw a spanner in at the <laughs> beginning. I mean, I'm just a journalist and an author. I've written books. So I, I haven't done any PR. I've written a couple of press releases. But I would say, from my point of view, the, the difficulty is the demands, really, between what the editor wants from you and how you feel as a human being bringing that together. So, I mean, I mainly write about health now, but I've done a lot of sort of interviews um, and a few reasonably high-profile ones. And I, I can give an example, actually. Um, I interviewed um, in 2007 Kate McCann, who was the mother of Madeline, who, um, you know, the little girl that was kidnapped, who's been back in the news recently because of the Australian story. And I had to go to the Algarve for a 10 minute interview with Kate McCann to get a cover story for Grazia magazine, who I was freelancing for at the time. So I had all these things going on in my head. I had to get the story. I had to get the line. But I also wanted to be a nice human being. You know, this woman, her daughter's been kidnapped. I'm also a mother. So I had natural empathy. And it was having to balance all those things together. So that was probably one of the trickiest things I've had to do. I can imagine that that would be really tough. And, and the fact that you only had 10 minutes as well. I mean, I managed that... to stretch it to 20 because often, you know, you can do that. That's a, this is another subject. But when, you know, representatives say you only have this amount of time. So but that's a, that's a slightly separate. But 20 minutes isn't very long, really, is it? Even in this scenario? No, definitely not. That, and that must be really tough, like you say juggling all those things but I guess in a way if you are coming at it from a more empathetic um position then perhaps that that helps um like you say you're I was, but you still need you need to get the line don't you, mm. you need to get the cover line you need to get so uh, it wasn't easy let's let's put it that way yeah yeah I can only imagine um, I mean, one question that comes up quite a lot, we see this quite a lot um, on social media, and I think particularly people that are new to the industry, new to freelancing, um, there's a lot of discussion around kind of, oh, I would never work for them. Um, and I just wonder, um, Alice, if I come to you, like, would you ever object to work for a particular publication? You know, would you sort of make a decision, well, you know, I'm not writing for them because their political view doesn't align with mine or I don't like the way in which they cover a particular topic. Um, I mean, what what would you factor into your decision making on that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question um, because a lot, <laughs> you know, the journalism industry is pretty unstable and a lot of publications are not perfect. Um, when it comes to politics, I don't think I would write for super right-wing publications simply because that's not where I um, stand. But if it's more kind of centrist or there's stuff that has ethically not been okay. I mean, I know Vice some time ago had that scandal with editing photographs. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that. Um, it's quite tricky to say, I'm not going to write for that publication anymore, especially if you know that they will publish your angles and the sorts of stories you want to write, because, you know, if they pay well, <laughs> there aren't, there, you know, there aren't thousands of publications to choose for that would publish the kinds of stories you want and pay well. Um, so I am hesitant to judge people who, um, write for publications that aren't ethically perfect because um, I don't think there are many that are ethically perfect 
but of course like if the whole publication is just all bad and um i think that they are causing more harm than good in society then i personally would steer clear from them um i hope that answers the question yeah i mean we've lily and i have had this conversation lots of times and i i think i don't want to speak for lily but i think we both kind of tend to feel that it's a lot more nuanced than is often portrayed and I and I usually think about the article that I'm writing and the ownership I have of that rather than the publication that it's in um but yeah I'd be really interested in your view on this Miranda having written for such a wide range of, of publications I haven't come across this I feel lucky enough to be able to make a living I mean, I'm, I'm being serious now. I mean, unless you're asking me to write for, you know, Nazi Weekly, which I think is very unlikely. I don't, I, I, you know, I, I don't have this problem. I mean, I, I, I don't write about politics, but then if I was writing about politics, I would feel comfortable writing about the brand of politics I was writing about. Um, but I really, this doesn't affect me on a, on, a, on a day-to-day level. I mean, it could be that I'm a slightly older generation. It could be that I came in via women's magazines. So my writing has been sort of human interest and health and relationships. So it's possible that, you know, I'm not at that end of journalism where this comes up. But I can honestly say this has never been something I've had to tussle with. I've, what I have had to tussle with is people being inaccurate people you know changing things and inserting inaccuracies into copy but that's a slightly different point again isn't it yeah yeah and I think that's really interesting that that for you it's it's not even you know an issue whereas you do see people that will will blanket you know blanket say I am not writing for x publication lucky for them if they can afford to do that well then that's yeah but I mean I I guess that also kind of brings up the question about if you're freelance then you you know you you do in some respects have that flexibility to choose who you write for but then other people will use the counter argument that well I'll only you know I'm only writing for them because they pay so well which to me personally that doesn't really wash because you're freelance you can to you know to to a degree you choose who you write for um but at the same time like Emma says I always think it's about the story and how your story is represented not about the publication because it's far more complicated than this is a bad publication this is a good publication um so yeah I, I I find it very strange when people just say I'm not writing for that publication full stop without really understanding, you know, every publication has got lots of different sections, lots of different types of stories, lots of different writers, lots of different opinions. And if you can get your story to a particular audience and, and, and you feel passionate about that story, then, um, then I think, you know, isn't that great that you can get your story in front of that audience that perhaps you wouldn't reach? Sorry, I'm 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 rambling a bit on this, but I feel quite passionately about it's about the story, not the publication. Um, but I think perhaps if we kind of move on to sort of talking about, um, I guess, topics in a way, like, is there any, Alice, has there ever, ever been a particular topic or a story that you felt perhaps not? completely comfortable um 
writing about and and what would you do in that situation how would you navigate that if you were asked to write on something or take a particular angle fortunately I've always pitched my angles so I've never really I've never really had an ongoing or staff role where I've been asked to take an angle it's the angles I have are the ones that I pitched um I do I, I had one sort of dilemma where I um pitched an angle and then it got accepted and I realized I perhaps with this is a personal essay with personal essays you have to undergo a certain level of growth before you're ready to write about it and then there's that moment of realization where I'm like oh maybe I haven't overcome <laughs> and grown enough to be ready to fully um candidly write about this and give the readers something worthwhile to take away from it um, but that is something, you know, we have to assess as freelancers when we pitch our ideas. Um, but yeah, I can't really speak on being told to take angles because I just haven't had that experience. Uh, Miranda, I mean, same question to you, really, because you mentioned then about inaccuracies or things being changed um, in your yeah. in your copy. Um, what yes, yes. Well, it, it happened with a, a mid-market I don't want to go into more details, but there, there, there is a mid-market newspaper that I have um, issues with about um, totally rewriting copy um, and some inaccuracies being inserted. That's I, that's all I want to say, really. But what I will say is about doing made, being made to do things you're uncomfortable with. That happened a lot more on staff and uh, um, actually on a, on a, a tabloid newspaper and um, it's one of the things thank god I'm freelance because I don't have to do that anymore so yeah. I find I mean you know I, I also have um, a more ongoing relationship with a broadsheet where you know not everything is my idea I would say it's probably 60 40 they come to me with ideas they want me to do which is different from when you're constantly pitching and as a, and it's a more of a good thing than a bad thing but I've had to come again, this is not more morality, but I've had to come get up to speed very quickly with things that I don't know about. But I maybe it's just the area I write about. I don't tend to find this really arises very often. Yeah, I mean, I've had those scenarios where uh, an editor has asked for a piece and then when I look into it I don't like the top line or the angle that they wanted to go with I actually don't think that it isn't the case it doesn't stand up but they've actually been really open to those discussions I think part of it is not tying yourself in a knot without having those discussions with the editor and saying look I think you know this is a better angle this is what we should be going with you know, I'm finding that what you think is the case might not actually be the case. The headline can be a problem, right? Yeah. Because as a freelancer, you have no control over the headline. And more as a staff member, but occasionally as a freelancer, that can be problematic. It's much more sensationalist because headlines have to encapsulate something in very few words and aren't nuanced. So that's where I think a lot of freelancers that I know have had problems. Yeah, I mean, it does bring us on quite nicely to... The next question that I wanted to ask you, Miranda, which is about the freelancer's responsibility when it comes to those that they're interviewing for a story. Yeah. So you mentioned the headline. They might not yeah. be happy with how it's presented, even though you're happy with your copy and how you've done kind of the bulk of the story. But you can also kind of envisage a scenario where the story goes viral or generates more interest than perhaps they were expected and they might feel a bit overwhelmed by it. How do you navigate that those kind of post-publication discussions with your the person you've interviewed when you are essentially sort of one step removed from that in-house editorial team 
Well, the first thing I tend to do, especially if it's on a sensitive subject, is I, I talk to someone on the phone before I interview them. Um, there isn't always time to do this, but I almost always make time. And I make clear to them that everyone they know is going to read this. So if there's a mom or an ex-boyfriend or someone that you don't want to read this, don't do it. Because somehow or other, everyone is going to read it. So that's the first thing I do. The second thing I do, I would say 90% of the time is I read my quotes back to my interviewee. Sometimes I even send them. Now, you know, not every, some people might think, oh my God, but actually you sleep at night. <laughs> and some and people, I find people get upset about the funniest things, like not about this grand, you know, um, exposure of something quite personal, but if you say they had a, a son rather than a daughter, or you get an age wrong, or you spell something wrong. So I try and my, my, my approach is more prevention rather than cure really. Um, and I'm not saying it ha happens 100%, but these days it tends to, it tends to stop this happening. Yeah, yeah, I do that as well with particular types of stories that, you know, if it's very case study focused, I will, I will, I will send them the copy. And I, um, I also, I interview doctors as well. So it's really important that they feel that they're being represented properly because, you know, it's all about reputation and repeat business, isn't it? Especially when you're writing about health and medicine. Yeah. Me, and personally. Yeah. And that comes back to fact checking as well, doesn't it? Because there's no one, it's not like, you know, in say America, where you've got people doing the fact checking and checking those quotes back with those people, it all kind of lands on you, doesn't it? So um, I think it's perfectly reasonable to check that what, your interpretation of what they've said is is accurate particularly when it's something around you know health or medicine or research um i think that that's really important um i think something else that kind of comes up and i think alice you've sort of touched on this because you sort of wear different hats and you you've, you've done some pr work um is uh, you know you've mentioned where you've been asked to kind of use your journalistic contacts um when it comes to sort of helping out with doing PR and I've had a real extreme of that where I've had companies contact me asking if they can pay me in effect for product placement so if I mention their company and put in a link in one of my finance stories they'll pay me to do it and I I, I mean I always call them out on it um, and I get very cross and I send them very um, strongly worded responses telling them that it's completely unethical and they should not contact any journalist um, to do this. But I think there's just a complete lack of understanding sometimes about journalism and how it's different to PR. Um, and I guess, how do you sort of walk that line, Alice? I mean, you've given us an example, but um you know are there are there other times where you've had situations where you you've had to kind of navigate that sort of PR and journalism world and and how do you how what would your advice be to others that perhaps do 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 a bit of both yeah I mean it's a really good question and um some I I learned through other journalists what those ethical lines were because I studied journalism formally but this was not something you were taught you were never taught like oh you can't get money you know if you'll get blacklisted from publications if you um are receiving money from two places and I mean luckily I was told this but um anyway side round I just think that it should be taught and we should be made more aware of this um, but I think that it's just establishing very clear boundaries with your clients. Um, obviously, if you're getting approached by people to ask you to 
put them in a publications, just I would probably just ignore them um, or say no. But um, if you are doing content marketing work um, and or doing PR work, it's you know not a not using your. I don't use myself as a journalist to help other people with their PR. I um, that's completely separate, and I try to keep those boundaries very separate. The relationships I have with editors is for my own writing; it's not for my publicity work. Um, so yeah, I think just establishing those boundaries, recognizing what you can and can't do, and then having a guideline to walk is easier. If you do run into a very blurry ethical space, talk to people. Um, I've always found it really helpful to talk to other journalists because then I can see, like, they might see something that I don't see, or they might be able to give me advice on how to move forward. Um, yeah, so I'd say establish those boundaries and just talk to people and get advice if you they are very gray areas where the lines are blurred yeah and I suppose it's about listening to that your gut instinct if you think oh yeah. actually that doesn't seem quite right to then to kind of trust that gut instinct and to have those conversations have those conversations with others um I mean it's interesting isn't it that the onus seems to be on the journalist that Lily's found this that there are others kind of in PR perhaps who don't understand where those ethical rules are and where you know what's allowed and what isn't allowed um you know especially I think these were kind of smaller companies that were reaching out to you Lily who didn't really have experience of of how that worked so you as the freelancer kind of have to know that 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 onus is on you to kind of say no that's not that's not the way this is done. Um, we wanted to move on a, a bit to chatting about um, writing personal pieces. So Miranda, you've written about yourself as, as part of your work, including you had the Insomnia Diaries column. Um, and a book. And a book. book, I was gonna say, that's now a book. Um, how, how do you decide how much of yourself to give away when doing those more personal pieces? And does that decision differ? Is it different writing about yourself to then extend that to writing about family members and perhaps children, etc.? Well, there's a very short answer to that in that I don't write about my children or my family. Um, I think in my book, I've just said, I, you know, um, I was a mother of two children, uh, it was very, you know, this is a truncated version. It was, it was very difficult, but this is a story about, um, about me, not my kids. They're teenagers and starting their own lives. So is that a conscious decision that you made? Yes, yes. And I told the publicity team looking after the book that I wasn't going to discuss my children. And some, um, some newspapers pushed it a bit, but, you know, I'm quite good at standing my ground on things. Although I did allow a picture to be, to be used in the end, but when they were babies, so I assume that that probably was all right. They have a different surname from me. And actually, now they're a little bit older, they get it, you know, they, they, they understand what I was doing. But when they're a little bit younger, they, but, you know, as I said before, it's my story, not theirs. Um, as, as for being open, I'm very open. I'm very open about myself. And I, I feel very comfortable with that. And as yet, I have to say, I haven't had any negative experiences on, on the whole. No, I don't think I have. Certainly not from readers. So. Well, it's interesting that you did draw that line where it came, when it came to your family members. And I think, you know, that's it. We all kind of have to decide for ourselves, don't we, where, where that line is. And Alice, I just wanted to bring you back in because I know you've written a lot of personal pieces. So do you have certain things that you won't write about or, you know, or other people that you won't bring into your 
your writing? Yeah, I mean, I think um, so what Miranda was saying when it comes to children, I can see that being a very um, important decision to make. And I obviously don't have I don't have children, so I don't need to think about whether or not they come into my stories because they don't exist. Um, but um, when it comes to what I will and won't write about, I think it's if I'm comfortable sitting in a room with people I don't know very well and talking about something, I know I'm ready to write about it. If I um, have barely managed to open up to my therapist about it, <laughs> I'm not ready to write about it um, because I think that good personal writing comes from a place of total um, vulnerability. And if I am not ready to be vulnerable, I know it's not going to be a piece worth reading. Um, and then what I mentioned earlier, I feel like I have to have overcome, like had some sort of personal growth um, and come out the other side different in some way to know that I'm ready to write about it. Um, in terms of bringing people in, um, people come into my essays, I haven't written a book, um, and it's usually in very minor ways, so I haven't really faced many ethical dilemmas about it. I don't think anyone minds, you know, that like I mentioned my mom or I mentioned a friend or something because it had some sort of impact in my life. Um, I did once write an essay about getting my heart broken. I used a pseudonym in that case. Um, so, yeah, I haven't really faced too many ethical dilemmas about bringing other people in because it's never felt like I'm exposing anything scandalous about them in any way. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, bit of advice there about thinking, because I do the same thing on Facebook. So my Facebook is kind of locked down because I'll put photos of the the kids and kind of what we're doing as a family and stuff up there. So my rule has always been it would only... I, only people who I would allow in my house or in my Facebook group who I would invite in for a cup of tea or whatever it might be so it's a similar thing if you can imagine yourself talking to strangers about whatever it is you're writing about then you're probably comfortable enough to write about it publicly I think you kind of have to think of it as being a real thing it's not just I'm writing this down on a piece of paper it is kind of going out there for people to read so that's quite a good kind of dis distinction to help you decide if you're actually happy to to write about something that might be quite personal yeah and I think it's quite an important piece of advice for new journalists because sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in the chase for the byline that you're willing to expose anything about yourself and there are journalists I know who regret the stories they've shared because it was deeply personal and they didn't feel ready to share their trauma so I don't think that you should be expected to sell your trauma to get a byline um if it's something that you feel totally comfortable sharing with the world and you think people can learn from your journey, then go ahead and share it. But if you're not ready, don't share it. There'll be other stories that you can write. Yes, yeah. and you don't have to share anything. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just one last thing that I kind of thought might be um, kind of interesting to, to look at. And, and Miranda, this might relate more to some of the work that you've done your sort of human interest stories is when you're working with a case study um, and there's a fee for that person how how do you kind of navigate kind of what fee they get um, um I I've got to be honest I don't work for anyone that pays the case studies oh really yeah and so I you think, I think when I worked for the mail they used to pay case studies I was staff but since I've been freelance, I, I, 
staff are probably the main people I work for. They don't pay their case studies. Oh, so I can't really help you with that. Uh, that's interesting. Because I, I just wondered when, I suppose, when you work on um, women's magazines, were, were there not case study fees involved then? I worked on Glamour and Grazia. I'm trying to think. May, I mean, Cosmo way back. Grazia may have paid. Yes, they may have paid some. So possibly... So sorry, what was the what was the the question you had? Well, I think I think it's probably it's more for those people that that so say for example you get a commission from a magazine um, and they say to you um, we'll pay you X amount and it's up to you how much you then give the case study. So say it's an as told to story for a women's magazine. And then it's up to you to decide how I've much never, to get a case study. I know it, in the days when I did that, that it was completely separate. Ah, okay. But I was start, but again, that was when I was staff. I had, so I'm afraid it's not something I've navigated as a freelancer. Yeah, I've not had to either. But you've had to navigate this a bit, Lily, haven't you? What? Yeah. How did you kind of? Uh, uh again, it's out? yeah. As Alice was saying earlier, I asked other people, so I went into freelance communities and just sort of said to people how do you decide you know how much you give the case study and how much you you keep yourself um you know we've got a good kind of mutual friend that had done a lot of this kind of work and I, and I actually rang her up and had a conversation with her about it and then I decided on a percentage basically um based on kind of what I felt they were bringing but also the amount of time and I was putting into it and what seemed a fair rate um but I wouldn't I wouldn't have then said to that person you know I'm getting three times as much as you for example um I would just say you know I I can pay you say 200 pounds um for being involved in this you know telling your story um so I guess that would be my advice would be to talk to other people um and yeah make a decision yourself and you don't necessarily feel like you have to kind of explain all the ins and outs um, of the kind of total fee. But I don't know. I feel slightly uncomfortable with that. I feel like it's not being completely transparent, um, but I don't know. That's yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you could, uh, there's a whole other topic there that we haven't got time to go into now around moral choices about paying case studies anyway in yeah. the first place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I suppose you as the freelancer need to work within that publication's, you know, if that publication pays for this type of uh, case study, then you then are kind of working within that but it, everything just seems to come back down having a chat to other journalists yeah. and not thinking that you have to navigate this stuff and it's also the, the expectation level so you might I had a story where I did um so there was a case study fee offered by the publication like separate to my fee so we did that but then the story um kind of blew up and everyone was reproducing it and I was going around chasing money because they were basically stealing the the story and the photos and then there was an expectation on her part that she would also get paid for it being picked up, sort of the second rights everywhere. So I had to sort of manage that as well. So again, um, you know, like you say, it's just talking 
I think talking to those in the community and getting advice from from others as well I think though we've probably running out of time now so um what we're going to do is bring this topic to a close and we're going to ask you both for your one top bit of advice from today's chat so Alice can we come to you first Yeah, of course. Um, I really liked Miranda's advice earlier about talking to someone on the phone before interviewing them. Um, I don't do a lot of in-depth features, but it's something I hope to get back into. And I think that's really great to kind of figure out where your swap stands and knowing if they're ready to share share or like share, give you the story um, content that you are looking for. So that's the advice I took out of this conversation. Thank you. Fantastic. I mean, that does, um, like Miranda said, that does potentially solve a lot of problems down the line, doesn't it? Um, yeah. So same question to you, Miranda. What would be your one top tip from today's episode? Yeah, well, I think the sort of I think it's an overused word, really, but boundaries. So, you know, you know what you will and won't accept. And, you know, hearing you discuss from a, a PR point of view. So you make it very clear where you stand and it's unequivocal. And then you, you know, then you stick by it. So that can, you know, you can relate that to all sorts of different things, can't you, in journalism, whether you're writing about yourself, whether you're, because I think you do have a responsibility to your case studies. I really do. Even after you've finished, you know, obviously you, you don't talk, you don't talk to them endlessly on the phone, but I often have follow up relationship with case studies. I mean, again, you have to have boundaries <laughs> within that relationship. Um, so I think that's probably the main thing that's like been, you know, um, reiterated for me really and I think it's really important to understand that boundaries will be different from person to person so like you say it's about setting your own boundaries being very clear with yourself what they are but not necessarily worrying about what everyone else is doing um it's kind of your own sort of compass that you that you uh judge that on okay brilliant so finally just as a way of sharing the freelance love we want to ask you both who is your freelance journalist kind of of the moment so who's caught your eye recently someone who's perhaps doing some really good work or someone you just admire so Alice who who would you recommend at the moment um I would recommend someone called Taylor Blair just because she's in my network and she's a teacher full-time and she has recently dabbled into freelance journalism and she's been published in Stylist and has I know a couple of upcoming pieces and pretty big publications like Insider and Refinery29 and she didn't study journalism formally she just picked it up while um, working full-time as a teacher and um, I've just found following her journey really cool and knowing that you know this is a career that can work for anyone who is interested enough in it and willing to teach themselves how to pitch and how to get into journalism so yeah that's that's my freelancer who I've been inspired by recently oh fantastic and that's a really nice kind of reason for uh mentioning uh them as well uh Miranda how about you who would you uh flag up yeah um, I've always liked um, Tanya Gold's writing so she's a columnist for the Telegraph but she writes also for the Mail and other people and I just think she's she's very erudite and she's very funny and she has a great style and her writing is very sort of appealing. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, again, two um, really good recommendations there. And we'll put those both um, in the show notes. But it's time to bring the episode to a close now. That's been really, really fascinating. Thank you both so much for coming on and, and giving us your thoughts on the topic today. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, learn all sorts about ways to navigate those moral choices. Uh, you can find out more about us and the resources we offer at our website, freelancingforjournalists.com, as well as joining our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community of 5,000 members. On social media, we're at Freelancing4, and you can also find us individually. I'm at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Gerno. And we'd like to say thank you to our research assistant, Helen Quinn, and our producer, Maddie Drury. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for now. Bye. Bye.